will be from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. 1 to 23. So listen for the comparison between Jesus' teachings and the teachings of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that means unwashed. You see, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And Jesus continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, which means devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, understand, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. And after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked them. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, Lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside, and that is what defiles a person. It's a pleasure for me to be here again today with you, Jake. Great selection of that song before the sermon. Fits really well. Appreciate that. I have a a daughter with me today who's traveling with me to to be here, Gable Seven, and she wanted to come be with us today, so I'm thankful for her partnership. Trips are a lot more fun if you have someone with you. And a couple years ago, my family decided that we would take a road trip during the summer. We went to the Grand Canyon. We thought that's an epic family thing to do, so we went through Albuquerque, stopped at the zoo, saw the polar bears. It was great. Went on to the Grand Canyon, and on the long drive back, I don't know where we were, maybe Clovis, somewhere, but I I asked my daughters, so, you're sick of being in the car. Was it worth it? I thought I was going to get these girls to say, this is terrible, this is miserable, but no, they loved it. They said, yes, Dad, seeing that big hole in the ground was fabulous. It was great. We loved it. (laughs) And so, as parents, we thought, okay, let's press this a little further and see what we can do. So this summer, we decided to go a different direction and go a little further. 
We took our kids to Canada. We drove 65 hours. <laughs> no, no, we like each other. It's okay. So we drove up all the way to, to Glacier National Park in Montana. If you just get to Yellowstone and go six more hours, Glacier, it's fabulous. It's worth it. You'd love it. And then into Waterton Peace Park in Canada and had a good time. And I got to tell you that the scenery, you know, once you get to Colorado, the scene absolutely fabulous and beautiful. It helped pass the time, as did the first two seasons of Little House on the Prairie. So road trips, road trips are good. So in the scripture today, this isn't the main point, but it is a point to be made. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law take a road trip. And they go from Jerusalem to Capernaum. That's 85 miles. They really had to want to go. And did they travel on foot? Well, they go. And they surround Jesus, kind of like a shark around its prey. And they gang up on him. And they're going to accuse him of something. They're going to look for a reason to trap him. And they ask him a question. And it's in a long line of questions that we've already read throughout Mark. And it has to do with food yet again. In chapter 2, verse 16, they asked, Why does Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? In chapter 2, verse 18, Why do your disciples not fast when John and the Pharisees' disciples are fasting? In 2.24, Why do your disciples pick heads of grain to eat on the Sabbath? And then here in chapter 7, verse 5, Why don't your disciples do ceremonial washing before eating? So, It's not that the disciples weren't washing their hands before eating. I think that they understood about cleanliness, but it's that they weren't doing ceremonial washing before before eating. And there's a parenthetical explanation in Mark that helps us understand, because whoever Mark was writing for maybe didn't know about all the rules of the Jews, and this is helpful to us as well. Because it says in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands the ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. Have you ever noticed that the ones who make the laws hold all the power? I heard an attorney once say, the ones who make the laws hold all the power. I thought, that's interesting that you would say that. And yeah, I know what you mean. The Pharisees have a lot of laws. They have a lot of rules about what's right and what's wrong. But Jesus is going to come into their world and break their rules to bring the power of God to earth. There's a greater law at work in the kingdom of God, law of love, law of true holiness, true purity within a person, not just in external appearances. So the Pharisees' problem is identified in Mark verses 3 and 4. They're holding on to the tradition of the elders, which is fine. Tradition is good. Tradition is okay unless it gets in the way of the commands of God. So the Pharisees are following the traditions of the elders instead of the commands of God. So Jesus the prophet is going to hold up like a mirror to them Isaiah the prophet. And he's going to show them what Isaiah had to say about them. And it's it's one thing to hold up a mirror and see a blemish in yourself, but this is like a gaping wound. Okay, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. You honor God with your lips, which is a good thing, but then your hearts are far from God. You worship God, that's, that's a good thing, but it's in vain, ineffective, it's meaningless. Or you teach, that 
that's a good thing. But it's only human rules and traditions. So basically, they've got an alignment problem that's taking their lives to the right towards self-righteousness. Their words and hearts and actions were going in different directions. These are three good things. Honoring God, worshiping God, teaching religion. But they could be done with wrong motives. Or they could be done inconsistently in a life. And in verses 8 and 9 in Mark 7... Two times, Jesus says, you let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of humans. You set aside the commands of God and observe your own traditions. And Jesus is going to get really specific about what he means when he says this. And he gives them an example. Here's what you do. Instead of giving money to God, or instead of giving money to your parents to take care of your aging parents, you say, it's Corbin. So it's devoted to God, and so you don't have to take care of your parents. And Jesus says, that's ridiculous. Don't do that. And the challenge for us is to find the appropriate substitute example or illustration for us today. Is there anything we do that perpetuates tradition while disobeying the commands of God? Again, tradition isn't bad when it's aligned with God and God's will and the teachings of God. But tradition can be a stumbling block if it prevents us from following the commands of God. I think this was the problem in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here's what I mean. You have someone coming to Jesus, who is my neighbor, and Jesus tells them this story. There was a man who was going down the road who was beaten and left for dead. And you know the story. Here's how it goes. There's a priest who walks by, sees the guy needing help, and walks by on the other side. And then a Levite comes by, sees the guy on the side of the road, and passes by. But a Samaritan comes by, sees the guy who needs help, and offers help. Tends his wounds, puts him on his his own donkey, takes him to get, get help in an inn. And Jesus is saying, it's the Samaritan who was the neighbor. Right, so we understand the teaching. But, but what about that priest and that Levite? I can't help but think that they were trying to do the right thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. We don't know their hearts. What if they were trying to remain ceremonially clean so they could go to the temple services and offer sacrifices? Because if they touch a body that's been beaten or they touch blood, then they're going to be unclean and they can't do their religious duty. So what if they were trying to do something good according to tradition? But they missed right in front of them The command of God, which is to love your neighbor and to help them. There was an immediate need that that they could have filled, that would have fulfilled the command of God, but instead they held to their tradition and walked by on the other side. I think that that was their mistake. So, Jesus' critique of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is that they're letting go and setting aside the commands of God to hold on to or observe traditions of humans. And he says, you do many things like that. You know, that's, that's like adding insult to insult. You, you just, you, you keep doing lots of stuff like that. And, and I want to know, like, what? what? What else were they doing? So I was looking over in Matthew chapter 23. As we read the other Gospels, we hear some of the other things the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were doing. In Matthew chapter 23, in verse 15, Jesus is going to come at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law again for their inconsistency. And he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. They would road trip together to do missions. 
but then burdened new converts with so many religious rules and human traditions that the converts were prevented from encountering God. Their own traditions got in the way of God's words. They were, they were doing this also when it came to food, and Jesus is going to return to the food issue. The Pharisees, I think, were well-intentioned. I think that they had good hearts. I think they wanted to do good, but they were missing God in the process. So going back to Mark, Jesus spells out the human digestive process to say, this is not what I'm talking about. Jesus says, okay, you know about food, how it enters the body and leaves the body. That's not the, the point here. Jesus says the real point is about spiritual food. He's more interested in spiritual nutrition and spiritual food and spiritual living. The type of food we eat isn't the biggest threat to our, to our religious, uh, our spirituality or our morality because it doesn't go into our hearts. Things that go into our hearts are the things we should be, be careful about. So, the bigger threat is what's shaping our hearts spiritually. And what comes out of our hearts spiritually? What's going in and what's coming out? And I think that we can actually influence the health of our hearts. Like, uh, like maybe the Spiritual Heart Association. We, we need to think about this. We need to ask ourselves, am I consuming healthy spiritual food or am I consistently snacking on synthetic substitutes that leave me never feeling satisfied but always coming back for more? Is that what I'm doing? See, Jesus described the biological digestive process, and I want to talk just for a moment about the spiritual digestive process. This is what I think. I think that, and I'll talk about the Word of God just now for, as an illustration of a healthy diet of something we would consume. The Word of God. It comes into our lives through our eyes and through our ears. When we, when we see it or read it and we see it in other people, but also when we hear it spoken, it comes into our lives. And if we think about it and meditate on it, then it resides in our minds. And the longer we meditate on it and remember it and recall it and recite it, all of a sudden it drips down into our hearts. And we start caring for it and loving it. I used to ask teenagers this, what's your favorite verse? Well, their favorite verses in the Bible are the ones they know the best. They know the best, the ones they love the best. They love the best, the ones they know. There's a relationship there, which makes me think we ought to read more of it. Maybe we'll like it. Well, I think so. We remember it. It goes into our minds, through our eyes and our ears. It drifts down to our hearts, and then it comes out of our hands in actions of love and service and compassion to other people. So it's kind of a really cool spiritual digestive process that the word goes through. And there's actually one other process. There's one other way this could happen which is it goes into our eyes and our ears. We meditate on it, remember it, recall it. It drips down to our hearts. We love it. And it comes out again through our mouths as we speak. Because remember, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or another translation, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of? So we could look at a symptom. How's our speech? which tells us the deeper problem, the spiritual heart. What is that like? I think this is why meditation and memorization is so important. Have we lost that? Do we, do we memorize scripture? Do we meditate on scripture? Do we, do we think about it? So from the very beginning of the Old Testament, they had the Shema, the, the, this, this section of scripture where God said, hear, O Israel, and Shema is the Hebrew word for hear, or listen, listen up. Hear, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart and soul and strength. And these commandments that I give you today, and I'm reading from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. 
The commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. I think God is giving us the secret to memorization right here. You want to memorize scripture? Write it on your door frames. Write it on your gates. Put it as a note in your locker. Put it on your dashboard of your car. Bind it to your head. Tie it to your wrist. Talk about it when you get up. Talk about it when you walk along the road. Talk about it when you lie down. That's how you'll know God's word. Consistent exposure to content over time. That is the secret to memorization. If you're a student in school at any level, consistent exposure to the content over time. Not just the night before, but (laughs) several nights and weeks before is how you're going to be able to remember things. So I think God is telling us to, to remember God's word. And this is how you do it. And he's given us a secret. And then you've got Psalm 1. Going from the, from the law to the prophets and, and the Psalms. You've got the very first Psalm. It says this. Blessed are those people who don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Or stand in the way of sinners. Or sit in the seat of mockers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on God's law they meditate. They meditate day and night. They're like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, but not so the wicked. The wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the person in that psalm who's esteemed, who's held up as as something to, to admire, to imitate, it's a person who meditates on God's word day and night. And, they, and, they, and they're like a person who produces fruit. Interesting. And so meditating on God's word is, is one way we get God's word into our lives. So I think Jesus is saying, it's not the fruit we eat, but the fruit of our lives that says the most about us. How we choose to live reveals the purity of our hearts. Out of a person's heart is where good comes from, it's where evil comes from. So instead of focusing on religious traditions, what about focusing on consuming and producing spiritual fruit? Consuming nutritious spiritual food and producing spiritual fruit. So how do we do this? In John 15, Jesus says, here's the secret. I'm the vine, you're the branches. You remain in me, I'll remain in you, and you'll produce fruit. Apart from me, you got nothing. He says, you can do nothing, something else. But uh, basically, if we're apart from God, you cannot produce fruit. Stay with Jesus, you're good. And fruit will be produced. But separate and apart, you can do nothing. This is also the, the lesson of Galatians five twenty two and 23. Okay, so the Holy Spirit enjoys producing fruit. The Holy Spirit in our lives enjoys producing fruit. So we're just the host that allows the Spirit to produce the fruit. It's not like we work our way into producing fruit. The Holy Spirit does it through us if we invite the Spirit into our lives. And so we can expect God's Spirit within us to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you've never memorized that list, let me give you a quick tip a mnemonic device for that three sets of three the first three have one syllable the second three have two syllables the third group of three has three syllables i'll say it again love joy peace 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you haven't memorized that list yet, that's your assignment. That's your homework for today. Go do that. Everyone from early elementary school on up can do this. So that's an assignment. But this connection between spiritual nutrition and food and the spirit is what was going on in my mind in Acts chapter 10 with Peter and Cornelius. Let me come at this a different angle. The Holy Spirit was leading Peter to be disoriented so that Peter would understand something in a new way. So in a vision, Peter saw all kinds of food being lowered from heaven and a voice saying, eat the food. But Peter was holding on to the tradition of the elders rather than the will of God. And he refused to eat it. No, no, never, Lord. I wouldn't eat that. This happened three times. And as Peter sits contemplating, what in the world does this vision mean? There's a knock at the door, and Cornelius had sent servants to get Peter to bring Peter back to Cornelius' house. So that Cornelius, the Roman centurion, centurion, could hear the good news of the gospel. But who was Cornelius? And it says in Acts 10, he was devout, God-fearing, he gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. And yet he was a Gentile, a Roman centurion. I wonder if, I wonder if Cornelius' heart and his actions qualified him to be a good candidate for this opportunity to be one of the first Gentile converts. But through the events of Acts 10, Peter came to understand the lesson of the vision of the food and the leadership of the Spirit. Peter was surprised to discover that there were more people included in the family of God than he originally thought. As Peter says in Acts chapter 10, 34, 35, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears God and does what is right. And as he was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on everyone there, and they were baptized. So the Holy Spirit was producing fruit in an orchard outside of Peter's gaze. Peter was watching one orchard, and all of a sudden fruit pops up in another one, and he's disoriented. But he was attentive and said, this must be the Spirit of God working. And he saw God's leadership and recognized that God was at work. So we also can grow in attentiveness to what God is doing in the world and the Holy Spirit is doing by consuming spiritual nutritious food and also producing fruit. So I want to remind you of a few things about bread. I think this is significant and it's a theme throughout scripture. This is really interesting. People don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want to make a quick observation. So once upon a time, people did not have access to the word of God. It was only copied by monks, maybe in monasteries, and they had it in some cathedrals or in some church buildings, or some groups who were rich had it. But mostly you went to an assembly on Sunday, and you heard a person stand up who had read the Latin or the Greek or the Hebrew Bible, and talk about it and that was your encounter with scripture you certainly didn't have it at home but then the printing press happened in 1450 Gutenberg in Germany and all of a sudden they could make more and more copies because before that they had to hand write every copy of the bible and if you're again wealthy you maybe could pay for that and maybe you had one at your castle or whatever in addition to being at the church building but then with Gutenberg there were more copies of the Bible spread out. And again, it wasn't just the rich people, but maybe an upper middle class family who could afford a Bible and they maybe had a family Bible. And I'm wondering, were people like craving 
access to the Bible? Did they want it? Did they, did they think, if we only had this in our own language, or if we only had this in our home? And then more and more Bibles are published so that all of a sudden, not just the family had a Bible, but maybe several people in your family had a Bible or even had their name engraved on it. And there's more and more access to the Bible. And then there's this other thing that happens. All of a sudden, in 2007, this mobile device is invented that allows people not just to have a Bible with them at all times. You can have 20 Bibles with you at all times. And that's just in English, not, not to mention you know, Spanish or German or Mandarin. If I have access to 100 Bibles in my pocket, why don't I know God's Word better? I think this is an indictment on my life that I don't crave and long for and hunger for the word of God like those people who were like can't wait till Sunday till I hear something from God or hear a word from God or till I can go maybe to the library and read a copy of the Bible because I don't have access to it now it's ubiquitous it's everywhere but it's ignored so may we again hunger and thirst for righteousness may we again be people who remember we don't live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God So, I mentioned I want to say a few words about bread. Think about this with me. In the Passover, the the Israelite people were supposed to eat bread made in haste, and it was flat. It was unleavened. We don't have time for it to rise. We're just making bread, and that for years was a a a remembrance, a memorial. Every year, every spring, they, they shared the bread that reminded them of God's great deliverance. Well, right after they shared that first Passover, they were in the wilderness for years and years and years. And they were nourished every day by manna, bread from heaven. I mean, they called it manna. What is it? Because they didn't know. But it's kind of like bread coming down from heaven every day, except for the Sabbath when they, you know, had to get enough on Friday for the two days. Okay. And then they were to build a tabernacle in the wilderness and one day they would build the temple, but there was going to be not only the ark and all these other things in the, in the ark and the tabernacle, but there's always going to, be, there's going to be a table. And on this table, there was to be some bread. It was going to be called the bread of the presence, where God's presence would be made known there in that place. The bread of the presence. Interesting. So then Jesus comes along, and when his disciples say, we don't know how to pray, he says, okay, do this. Pray our Father in heaven, and then at one point say, give us this day our daily bread. And what do you think the disciples were thinking about when Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread? Surely they were thinking about the manna, right? But then in John, you have Jesus saying, okay, let's talk about the manna for a minute. Yes, God gave you manna from heaven, but I'm the manna from heaven. And they're thinking, what? This is, this is confusing. He, he, Jesus says, very truly, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It's my Father who gives true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then, when Jesus is about to celebrate the Passover with that unleavened bread that they made in haste because they were going to be delivered from Egypt, Jesus says, I'm sharing this last Passover with you, but we're going to change things up a bit. I know that you remember the bread being, you know, the deliverance from Egypt, but this is my body. This bread 
that you're going to consume is, is, is my body, it's my life, it's me. And, and, and the cup of deliverance and salvation, the cup of praise that you drank at Passover, it's my blood. And he changed the meaning of the symbols right there. And this theme of bread throughout Scripture is like a deposit over and over and over of God saying, rely on me, trust in me, I'm going to take care of you. Hunger and thirst for me and love my son Jesus and this is how you have life. And just as this little exclamation point at the end, Jesus is born in the city of David. We know where Jesus was born, outside Jerusalem in this little hamlet called Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Interesting. I think there's a message there for us. Well, if you're going to grip something tightly, let it be the commands of God rather than the traditions of humans. As helpful as traditions can be at times, we should hold them a little more loosely. And remember, it's not what goes into our bodies physically, but what comes out spiritually that really makes us clean or unclean. If you care about purity, pay more attention to your spiritual diet than your physical one. And may that diet be full and rich with the words of God. And finally, as a reminder, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. Your mouth speaks what your heart is full of. So in just a moment, there are going to be people standing around, elders and and staff members standing around the room. If you are craving pure spiritual food and you're hungry and thirsting for righteousness and you want someone to help you along in that journey and show you where to get the nutrition, they'd be happy to talk with you. If you realize that you've been clinging more tightly to the traditions of humans than the words of God and want to change your grip and hold on to something else, they want to, they want to talk to you as well. If you want to confess faith in this bread from heaven that comes down to nourish the world, then you're, you're invited to respond as we stand and sing.